The America's National Parks Podcast is brought to you by L.L. Bean. L.L. Bean is a proud partner of the National Park Foundation, and you can help them support the parks by shopping their limited edition National Park Collection. Every time you purchase products from the National Park Collection, which includes totes, shirts, hats, patches, and more, you're helping to protect, restore, and improve parks throughout the U.S. Search National Park Collection at LLBean.com and be an outsider with L.L. Bean. More than a thousand years ago in the upper Midwest, indigenous people were moving mountains, literally. The mound builders changed the landscape by piling earth into tall shapes that could only be appreciated from up above. Native American ceremonial and burial mounds can be found throughout the United States. In northeastern Iowa and southern Wisconsin, many of these mounds are found in shapes of animal effigies people known as the Woodland Indians started building them between 800 and 1600 years ago. There are four types of earthen mounds, conical, linear, compound, and effigy. The conical and compound mounds were often used as burial mounds. Effigy means in the shape of, and are found in the shapes of mammals, birds, and reptiles. Effigy mounds were for burials and ceremonies, though only a quarter of them have any burial material inside. The purpose of the mounds is still a mystery today. Researchers guess that they could have been for religious ceremonies, burial ceremonies, or as a way to connect with the spiritual world. I'm Jason Epperson, and this week on America's National Parks, Effigy Mounds National Monument in Harpers Ferry, Iowa. When white settlers began colonizing the Mississippi River Valley in the mid-1800s, the majority of the mounds were plowed over for agriculture, and the remains within them were crushed into the soil. In Wisconsin, it's estimated that of the 20,000 original effigy mounds built by indigenous people, less than 4,000 remain. There were a select few people who began paying attention. Some amateur archaeologists and academics began recording the shapes and locations of mounds throughout the region. In 1949, President Truman established Effigy Mounds National Monument to protect a range of mounds in a thousand acres along the Mississippi River. And in 1964, a man named Thomas A. Munson got a job at the monument. In just seven years, he rose the ranks and became the park's superintendent. Like all National Park Service employees, it was Munson's job to preserve and protect the monument for generations to come. This was a sacred site for at least 20 different Native American tribes, after all. Even within a national park site, protection does not mean the same thing to everyone. Archaeologists continued to excavate the mounds into the 70s, and some of the bones and artifacts were even put on display. The majority ended up in a basement storage area. At the same time, a movement was forming. Native American tribes didn't agree with the continued excavation of their ancestors' remains. Iowa became the first state to pass a Native American Graves Protection Law in 1976, which stopped all excavations at effigy mounds. Years later, another Protection Act was coming, this time from the federal government. President George W. Bush signed the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. 
Any agency that was receiving funds from the federal government was supposed to catalog all remains within five years and return them to the tribes. This law gave Native American tribes the right to bury the remains in accordance with their own religion, putting their ancestors to rest in the earth. It signified a shift in emphasis on the traditional scientific perspective to one that viewed the mounds and the landscape in a more humanistic way. At the time, there were many archaeologists that feared this new law. They worried that returning remains and artifacts would be like removing a piece of North American history, effectively destroying the chance to continue to study ancient cultures. To some, the artifacts and human remains were viewed as purely scientific objects. Munson was paranoid that tribes would use the law to control the artifacts within the monument and even discussed theories with another superintendent in Pipestone National Monument in nearby Minnesota. In July of 1990, Munson and a subordinate left the monument's curatorial facility, each carrying a box of human remains. In total, there were more than 2,000 whole and fragmentary human remains from 41 Native Americans. Munson brought them to his home in Wisconsin, placed the bones in his garage, and kept them hidden for more than 20 years. In 1994, Munson retired from the Park Service, and for two decades, no one seemed to notice that the bones had gone missing. With the rest of the story, here's Abigail Trabio. In 2011, Jim Nepstad started his tenure as superintendent at Effigy Mounds. He was coming into his leadership role at a tenuous time for the monument and for the Park Service. Through a whistleblower complaint and criminal investigation, the Park Service found that many recent construction projects on the ground were completed illegally. Between 1999 to 2010, more than 78 projects did not follow the National Historic Preservation Act, nor the National Environmental Policy Act. In total, the projects had cost taxpayers almost $3.4 million. The Park Service built boardwalks throughout the sacred burial mounds, as well as bridges, roads, and a shed. Normally, there are mandatory environmental reviews and tribal consultations that take place before building on protected land. Nepstad's job was to repair relationships with the tribes and bring legal order back to the park. That year, a representative of one of the tribes affiliated with the park requested an inventory of the park's cataloged remains. Nepstad looked through the reporting data to 1998 and noticed that a vertebrae, skull fragments, and other bones were listed as missing. Even more disturbing, they'd been missing for more than two decades. Nepstad reached out to Bob Palmer, the park's only law enforcement officer. Palmer had worked seasonally at Effigy Mounds for more than 20 years, and Nepstad thought maybe he knew something about the missing bones. While he didn't remember anything about human remains, Palmer told Nepstad about a conversation he'd had with the former superintendent, Thomas Munson, the summer before. Munson told Palmer that, in the move to his home in Wisconsin from the park housing after retiring in 1990, a box of animal bones had gotten confused in his belongings. The next day, Palmer picked up the box from Munson's house, and when he opened the box back at the park, he found a black trash bag filled with human remains that had museum numbers written on them. An archaeologist inventoried the box and found that it only contained about a third of the missing bones. 
Nepstad and park rangers at effigy searched for the other missing bones on park property. Nepstad finally discovered a report in the park's files detailing that the missing bones had been marked as abandoned in July of 1990. In archaeology, the term abandoned is only used for things like clumps of dirt, something that is obviously not archaeologically significant. Nepstad's eyes scanned to the bottom of the report where a Park Service signature was scribbled on the page. It read, Thomas Munson. Over the next few years, two separate superintendents, Karen Gustin and Catherine Miller, also noticed the missing bones and reached out to Munson. He separately assured each of them with different stories. The bones must have been sent to the state archaeologist and never returned, or were misplaced in a locker and thrown out. In 2012, a special agent for the Park Service's Investigative Services Branch was on the case. The agent spoke with Munson at his house, and Munson told him yet another unique story. The agent then contacted Sharon Greener, who had once been a seasonal employee at Effigy Mounds and was still an administrative assistant. Greener told the agent that Munson had directed her to collect the remains, bring them to the park's office, and write up a report marking the bones as abandoned. Greener reported feeling uncomfortable, but as a seasonal employee, it's likely she wasn't aware of the implications of what she was doing. The two of them then carried the bones from the basement of the visitor center to Munson's car. The agent returned to Munson's home, this time speaking with both Thomas Munson and his wife. He walked through his investigation, laying out the inconsistencies in Munson's story. Munson eventually confessed. It turns out the second box of bones had been in Munson's garage all along. When the agent retrieved it, a femur was sticking out of the garbage bag. In 2016, Munson was sentenced to 10 consecutive weekends in prison, a year of home confinement, 100 hours of community service, and a $3,000 fine. He was also responsible for paying more than $100,000 in restitution, which was the approximate cost of analyzing and cataloging the remains he'd stolen. Effigy Mounds National Monument has had its fair share of scandals in recent years, but it's also a place of human legacy. In the early 1900s, along the banks of the Mississippi River in northeast Iowa, one of the last Ho-Chunk people living a traditional lifestyle wove near-perfect baskets. She was a strong-willed woman of another time, living out her life in a wigwam she had built with two other Ho-Chunk women. Much like her people's history, her personal life was also marked by tragedy, matched by strong will for survival. Here's Abigail again. Emma Big Bear moved to Wacon Junction, Iowa in 1917 after marrying her husband, William Henry Holt, on the Winnebago Reservation in Nebraska. Emma was 47 years old and pregnant, and it was her second marriage. While no one knows why Emma and Henry moved to Iowa, it could be because of the many mounds built by their ancestors in the region. The land that would be later protected as Effigy Mounds National Monument was just a few miles south. 
The Ho-Chunk people lost most of southwestern Wisconsin through treaties in the 1830s and were forced to move to Iowa in 1840. Eight years later, the Ho-Chunk were moved to Wisconsin, and between 1856 and 1865, the U.S. government ordered the tribe to move twice more. Again and again, the Ho-Chunk tribe was mercilessly moved, traveling in cattle cars that the young and old struggled to survive in. The tribe was placed in multiple reservations near their powerful enemies until the government created a Winnebago reservation with a purchase of Omaha lands in Nebraska. Throughout all of this time, Ho-Chunk families made the journey back to their homelands in Wisconsin. If they were found, authorities would escort them back to their reservations. Emma was born around 1869 in western Wisconsin, but there are few stories about her childhood or her first marriage. Emma and Henry lived in Wacom Junction together for 25 years. Their daughter Emmeline also lived with them while her husband was overseas fighting in World War II. In 1944, Henry fell through the ice of a nearby creek and contracted pneumonia. He passed away at the age of 77. Emmeline died just a few months later, possibly from tuberculosis. Both were buried at the Nebraska Reservation, but Emma returned to Iowa. With the help of two visiting Ho-Chunk women, she built a wigwam and lived on the bank of the river at McGregor with no electricity, running water, or telephone. Emma sold tiny dolls, beaded jewelry, and baskets to make a living. Though she was fiercely independent, neighbors in the town began to offer her assistance as she grew older. A ride in the car, or beef kidneys set aside by the butcher. A flood in the 1950s forced her to evacuate her wigwam with the help of the Red Cross, and she finally moved into a house in Marquette a few years later. She had family there, and her great nieces and nephews regarded Emma as their own grandmother. Today, Emma's baskets and beadwork are displayed in shops and museums in the area, prized by locals. When she passed away in 1968, her communities knew that they had lost someone special. In Emma's final days, after spending time in the Wisconsin Dells and Madison, she moved to a nursing home in Lansing, Iowa, near the Mississippi River. There, along the Mississippi, among the ancient burial mounds of her ancestors, she was home. Effigy Mounds National Monument has 195 known mounds. Many are cone-shaped, but there are also around 30 effigy mounds in the shape of bears and birds. One bear mound is 137 feet long and 3 feet tall. Many mounds are also the resting places for copper, bone, and stone tools. Visitors to the monument can walk the two-mile Yellow River Bridge Trail, which winds through a wetland similar to those that Native Americans would have depended on for survival. Fire Point Trail will take visitors on a two-mile path to see more than 20 mounds and to sweeping views of the Mississippi River from high atop the bluffs that overlook it. The monument is right along the Great River Road, which from here north to Minneapolis is home to some of the best natural beauty the Midwest has to offer. This episode of America's National Parks 
was hosted by me, Jason Epperson, narrated by Abigail Crabu, and written by Lindsay Taylor, whose blog, The Curiosity Chronicles, can be found on the webpage for this episode. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search National Park Podcast. You can also join our America's National Parks Facebook group. For more great American destinations, give us a listen at the Sea America Podcast. And if you're interested in RV travel, find us at the RV Miles Podcast. You can also follow Abigail and me as we travel the country with our three boys all over social media as our wandering family. Today's show was sponsored by L.L. Bean. Follow the hashtag BeAnOutsider and visit LLBean.com to find great gear for exploring the national parks. <laughs>